0: Father, we thank you that you are the miracle worker, that you keep your promises, and you're faithful, that we can trust you. And God, this morning, we we pray that we come face to face with the reality of who you are. And that our response is one of worship, one of adoration, and one of allegiance. And God, today we ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would change our hearts, change our lives. And God, we pray that you would do a work in our lives that that can only be pointed back to you. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You can uh, have a seat, uh, if you are a first-time visitor of Palmetto Shores, I probably uh, need to introduce myself. I am not the pastor, uh, I am a guest, uh, actually I'm a member, but I'm a guest preacher, and so it is a joy to be here. My name is David Neese, uh, I'm a member of this church, and I also am a missionary partner. I direct a ministry at Coastal Carolina University, working with college students, called BCM, uh, and uh, we, uh, our goal is to see students come face-to-face with the gospel. Uh, In just a couple weeks, we'll have over 10,000 students coming back to campus Um, in this trying time. You can imagine all the logistics and things that are going on, and we have no idea what life is going to look like, but I am confident of this, that the gospel is going to advance and that students need to see Jesus and respond to him. And so we have students who know Christ, who will show up on campus, and we're going to come alongside them and hope to connect them to local churches, but we also have students who have no idea who Jesus is. And so our goal is to present them with the gospel, to have them have a decision for Christ and their lives eternally changed. And you are part of that through this church, through the giving of this church. You help support that. And so thank you uh, for being a faithful church that does that. Um, I also get to preach here occasionally. And when, get, when I get asked. Uh, to get to preach, I'm confident of this, and that is, is that um, I, in other churches around town, if I go and get an invitation to preach, sometimes they'll say, hey, just preach this text, or you can preach whatever you want to, Um, and normally there's some sort of Rolodex of sermons that I can go back to and and change a little bit, but when Ronnie asked me to preach in this church, I can be confident that I've never, ever preached that, and it's going to be one of the harder texts that he just didn't want to touch, and so... That's where we're at this morning, and so uh, your grace is much appreciated as we kind of navigate those waters together. However, I'm confident of this, that God's word is good, and it is inspired by God and useful for teaching. And this morning, by God's grace, you'll be encouraged by that as well. The theologian A.W. Tozer says this in one of his works. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, actually, that if we could extract the very exact thought in each mind, we could rightly predict the future of that man. So what he's saying is, whatever comes into your mind when I say, what do you think about God, that is the most important thing about you, is what he says, and based on that, he could rightly predict the future of that. That's how important it is that we have right thoughts of who God is, because it impacts how we live and what our future is. And so, this morning, as we come to the psalm, what we need to understand is what comes into your mind when you think about God. For many of us, it's swayed by experiences that you've had over the last year, or months, or days, weeks, or even hours. For many of us in this room, sometimes our view of God is swayed by experiences of blessings or struggles. Times of good things happening, or times where it's just absolutely pain filled. Sometimes your view of God may be elevated or deflated by the people you surround yourself with. People that say that your God is no way he could be like that, or you on the other way, that he is amazing, and they kind of along encourage you. So, what do you think? about God. One of the beautiful things about preaching through books like Palmetto Shores does is that we come to texts that otherwise we wouldn't ever get to, and it makes us come face to face with reality of grand pictures of God in unfamiliar ways. We wrestle with the text like we will today, and for many of us, we we think about God, we think about his love, and we, we think about his kindness, or we think about his goodness, or we think about his faithfulness, and all those rightfully so, we should elevate those. But this same God is portrayed in the Bible, revealed in the Bible to be a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a consuming fire, a, a holy God who is perfectly holy. And so those truths have an impact on how we view God as well. As we read through the Psalms, you'll see the wrestling, a, a passion, emotion as psalmists wrestle Uh, with this idea, and they call our attention to God in an unfamiliar, unfiltered way that require of us to make a decision. Do you trust this God? Do you truly worship this God, or what will you personally do with this God? The Psalms are ordered in a way they are for a very specific reason. It's not like they just threw them in a, a a blender and wherever they ended up and sometimes where you just flip through psalms and are like oh yeah this goes here but they go in a very specific order a couple of weeks ago we were in psalm 74 and in psalm 74 there's this end with a cry of despair the psalmist is saying god please do something please arise and change what's happening If you were with us last week, Pastor Ronnie talked about Psalm 75 begins to answer that prayer. There's this sense of response. There's an assurance in Psalm 75 that in what Psalm 74, God is going to act. As we get to Psalm 76 today, what we see is there's a historical instance where God has in fact acted and it carries on to this day, which means we can trust he will act in the future. And so you'll see this progression um, over the last three weeks. And Psalm 76 turns our attention to the greatness and mightiness of God and requires this response. What will yours be? If you know him today, will you join the chorus of praise and live a life consistent with that? Or if you don't know him, will you take heed and turn to him and worship him this morning? Let's read together Psalm 76. This is what it says. To the choir master. With stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. The superscript here, the beginning, is a psalm of asaph is attributed to the line of asaph like the previous two weeks and whether this is actually asaph writing this or actually what i think is a descendant of asaph writing this specific it comes from that line a line of worship leaders a line of saying hey let's praise who god is." And it's written to the choir master, says to the choir master. You think about a choir master, somebody who's leading the people to lift praises, somebody who is standing in front and saying, this is our song. This is what we're rejoicing towards. This is what we're proclaiming. It says with stringed instruments, so you can imagine the noise and this idea, this symphony rising of who God is and why we should praise him, proclaiming who he is and what he's done. The psalms almost are this, especially when there's talk about these worship psalms, it's almost as if it's expressing truths of the heart that have been taken in through the mind. And for many of us in this room, the temptation this morning is just to take things in through the mind and not let them take root in our hearts. But what we see true worship is, is that when God's truths are birthed in our hearts, then suddenly the overflow becomes out in our praise. And that's what we see happen here. Most scholars actually believe this specific psalm, was written about a great victory of the Lord, um, that he did something. God acted in a certain way, and it mattered. The general structure of the psalm is in the first couple of verses, we see him talking about who God is and the the idea of this, and then he moves to directing specific praise to God about what God has done. And then at the end, we see almost a point to us, those worship leaders, say, this is what we should do as a response. So we're going to work through this this morning, and hopefully you'll see this unfold in a beautiful way. First of all, this morning, first point is this. We have a known God, and His name matters. We have a known God, and His name matters. We know His name. He has told us who He is. He is not some unknown person floating around. He is not some unknown character trying to. That we're trying to figure out who He is. We know Him. His name matters. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. It's tempting for us just to rush right past this. Okay, he's just telling us about some places, but what he's doing is he's calling our attention to our God specifically. He's saying this is the God we're talking about, not those other fake gods out there, not the other things trying to clamor for your attention. This God specifically, this is who deserves our worship. He's talking about these places, this broad place. He talks about Judah, which is the, the region, an area. Then he talks about Israel, the nation, the people, the people of Israel. Then he talks about Salem. He says his abode has been established in Salem. Salem is short for the city Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Jerusalem means city of peace. So he's saying something's going on in the city of peace, which happens to be in the region of Judah, which happens to be part of the nation of Israel. So he's calling our attention in to who this God is. And then he says this, his dwelling place in Zion. Zion was a hill in the city of Jerusalem, in the region of Judah, in the nation of Israel. And Zion was the place where the tabernacle was built, where God dwelt with his people. So he's calling the attention to one specific God among all these other fake gods of the land and saying, our God is known. He is here with us. And when he's saying this idea of known, he's not just like, oh, yeah, you know the God that's over there. It's this idea of experience. The people know him. When you have had experience with God, you leave change. You know who he is. And God is with them. It, the psalmist is not limiting God to a place. In essence, he's just celebrating that God is dwelling with his people. And he's setting the stage for a power struggle that we're about to see about our God, this God, the God of Israel versus these other fake wannabe, king, and gods. He is known. He resides with them. And in this day, the tabernacle was where he received the praises of the people where they would come and bring gifts through sacrifices. It was a sign of relationship, although distant at the time. But yet through the work of Jesus, what we understand is through Jesus' life and death, it becomes possible for you and I, who are outsiders to the city of Jerusalem, to come inside and be indwelt by this same God. To know God is to know that he is great, to feel his greatness, and to feel our smallness. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, looks out over everything, and says, man, I am amazing. In fact, you might be tempted to push one of those people in if they were sitting right next to you saying that. It's the same way. We don't come face to face with the reality of who God is and what he's done and leave thinking better about who we are. We leave thinking, how awesome is he? This is what the psalmist is doing. He's pointing us to this great God, that his name is great. Everyone in this world is trying to turn your attention to things that are great, whether it be food or music or sports or lifestyle. Everyone's pointing towards what they think is great. The psalmist is saying, no, 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 God alone, our God is great. His name is great. People know it. And though the people, the world out there might not know it, we know it and we celebrate it. He is not like these other fake gods. He is altogether different. And in Scripture, names provide um, ideas, this idea, attributes and characteristics of who God is. So when God reveals his name in Scripture, It means something. It tells us about who he is. So when the psalmist says his name is great, it's not just like, oh yeah, God, the name. It's referencing all of these names. In fact, later on, it speaks of the God of Jacob. These people, these people that are worshiping in this moment, recognize that if God wasn't the God of Jacob, they would not exist. Because of the lineage of scripture, if Jacob doesn't exist, they don't exist. So the fact that they even are alive in this moment is only because God is who he says he is. And all through Scripture, we see these pictures of what God is like. So what does the Bible say? Just for a moment, entertain with me. What does the Bible say about your God? Number one is this. He's revealed as Elohim. The word Elohim in Hebrew is used over 2,700 times to describe your God. And it speaks of God the Creator. God, the one who started this whole thing, the one who is, the creator God. You exist because God is Elohim. It also talks about God as Yahweh. Yahweh is the most common name for God, used over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And it speaks about God as not only creator, but Lord and sustainer as the very being that creates and keeps things going. When Moses is having this incredible experience at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is all worried about who he's going to go to Pharaoh. And he says, Pharaoh, I need to know, I need to know, God, I need to know who to tell Pharaoh you are. And God says this, I am that I am. And the word there is Yahweh. Yahweh is the I am. Which means he will never be, there will never be a moment when he is not. And in fact, Jesus in, in John chapter 8, he's having a conversation about uh, with some Pharisees, and they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses that exact same word to say, Jesus is the I am. Your God is the I am. In Exodus chapter 14, as, as they're about to go across the Red Sea, as the Red Sea's about to part, it actually says, so that they would know that the I am is. It talks about Yahweh that the people around would know Yahweh. This Bible also says that the name of God is El Yon, God Most High. That it, it signifies his power, that he is high and exalted. It doesn't describe me and you as El Elyon. It describes God, Yahweh, as El Elyon, meaning that he is able to meet my needs, that he has the power, that he has the ability to do that. Or El Shaddai talks about God being almighty, all-powerful, all-sufficient, that he is enough that we can trust the guarantee of his word and provision. This Bible also talks about Yahweh as Jireh or Yaira. Genesis chapter 22: Abraham is promised a son. The son finally comes, and, and Yahweh goes to Abraham and says, Sacrifice your son. So they go to this mountain, and they're having this conversation as they're going up, and Isaac says to his dad, Hey, I see all this wood. I see everything. We're about to go make a sacrifice to the Lord, but where is the sacrifice? Isaac doesn't know that he's the sacrifice. They go on up. What does is, what is Abraham says? The Lord will provide. They go up. He ties Isaac down, and as he's about to pull the knife back to, to sacrifice his son, the Lord stops him and points to a ram over in a thicket who he has provided the sacrifice to take the place for Isaac. And he says that they name that place the Lord will will provide friends he has provided in the past and he will provide in the future the lord is our provider he will never not be able to meet one of our needs yahweh nisi the lord is my banner of victory That's how he's described, that he is the one who provides the victory, that he is the one who conquers, that he is the one we can trust. As you go on, we can see that he's the Lord of hosts, that he's the healer. He's the one who makes us holy. He's our peace. He's our righteousness. He's our present helper. He's our shepherd. He's our father. He's our king. He's our judge. He's our redeemer, potter, light, rock, fortress. He's our shield. He is God, and these are his names. And so when the psalmist says, the name of your God matters, all of these things come into play and say, this is the God we're talking about the one who has been faithful in all of these ways, we can trust this God. And so it's like the psalmist is pointing, pushing back, pushing back, until we have laser sight on who he's talking about. The name of our God matters. In Acts chapter 4, it says, there is no other name that provides salvation except for the name of our God. Who we worship matters. So this morning, who do you worship? Do you praise the God of your imagination? You might not have a name for him, but have you created your own imaginative God? Do you fashioned in your own hands, your own image? Do you worship the God of entertainment or pleasure or money or power or gratification, things that only God can really provide? Or do you praise this God because the God we worship matters? Second this morning, we worship our God for his works. Not only do we worship God for who he is, for all these things we just talked about, we worship God for his works on our behalf and in this world. What's the beautiful thing about God is he is consistent. So who he is is consistent with what he does. Life would be a lot better for all of us if we were more consistent in that manner. Let's look at verses 3 through 9. Verse 3 starts off, it says this. It says, there, it's this pronoun, there he broke the flashing arrows, referencing what's just happened in verses 1 and 2. What's happened in this place? There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. And then it ends with Selah. It's a beautiful verse. And and this Selah in Hebrew poetry is is almost like a pause. So you're reading through stuff and it just says, pause, stop and think about what you've just read. And so normally we would just skip right through. Okay, there he did something. Take a breath, let's continue on. But this morning I want us to take a pause and reference back to what he just said just happened. So he uses the word there as a pronoun referring back to locations in verses one and two. So in Jerusalem, there, which is the there, God acted. Then he mentions several things God did and then he says pause and think about it. So what did God do so we can pause and think about it? Biblical scholars most biblical scholars think that this psalm is referencing a specific story that can be found in three different places in scripture. I'm going to tell you where those are. You can write them down. I want you to go back and read them this week because it will help this passage really come to light for you. This morning I'm going to tell you the story, but the three passages are this: 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Kings 18:19, 2 Chronicles 32. In Isaiah 36 and 37. So those three passages tell different versions of the same story. But here's the story. There is a king reigning in Judah. His name is Hezekiah. He's in Judah, okay? Hezekiah is the king, and he does what's right in the Lord. In fact, Scripture is consistent with saying that he follows the Lord, that he holds fast to Yahweh, that he trusts in Yahweh, and he doesn't go and trust in any other kingdom of this land, that he actually turns away from all that and says, I am going to serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Scripture says that God is with Hezekiah, and whenever Hezekiah would go out, whatever he did prospered. And it says in Scripture that he refused to serve the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria was a guy named Sennacherib. Sennacherib was important because Sennacherib led king of who was the king of Assyria. The Assyrian army was one that was known to be mighty and powerful and completely destructive. If you stood in the way of this army, you were toast. And the fact that King Hezekiah would not bow down to Sennacherib made Sennacherib kind of upset. And it says in Scripture, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's rule, the Sennacherib decided it's time to wipe everyone out. And so he goes on this rampage. He sends his army all over town, and it says that they destroy the fortified cities all over the place, and that they destroy the fake gods of this land. They take over kingdoms, and Sennacherib says it's time for the culmination. I'm taking Jerusalem. And so Sennacherib sends at least 185,000 of his men along with some spokespeople to Jerusalem because it's time for the epic battle. And scripture portrays this picture of the leader of Sennacherib's army, the Rabshaka, the guy that's the spokesperson for Sennacherib. He shows up, some of Hezekiah's men come out and it's actually lists the son of Asaph as one of these men, which would make sense why this then is a psalm of Asaph. And this conversation ensues where basically the Rob Shaka begins to taunt the people of Israel and questions Hezekiah's leadership. They say, Hezekiah's lying to you. You come at us with strategies of word for warfare. You can't stand against us. We will destroy you. There is nothing you can do except for cower in fear because we're coming at you. Hezekiah's men say, hey, 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 do us a favor. You can talk trash to us, but can you do it in a different language? These guys up here on the, on the, on the thing, they can hear and they understand the words you're saying. We, we don't want them to get scared and not trust in God anymore and come out with you. So can you just speak into a different language that only we can understand and we'll translate? Snake ribs. Rob Shaka says, no, 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 no! Not only that, I'm going to take it a step further. And it, Scripture records that he comes with the ultimate trash talk. He looks at the people, he accuses Hezekiah of lying, saying that Yahweh will not will not save them. And he says this: Not only will you lose to us, but you will have to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. It's in Scripture, go read it yourself. If somebody talks trash like that on the basketball court; it's on, right? And so, like, there's this epic battle that's about to ensue. And you can imagine this scene, 185,000 men at least coming at this fortified city. You're up on the wall. You understand what's about to happen. And the rob shaka continually says, you cannot trust Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusts in Yahweh. And then he takes it a step further and he starts to taunt Yahweh and says, God is not to be trusted. God alone can't even deliver you from us. In essence, he's saying, I'm more powerful than the God you think you serve. And it goes back and forth and goes back and forth. And ultimately, what we see is that there's this moment of, do we trust who God is? In fact, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and reassures him and says, You can trust God. You can trust him. You know who he is. He has been faithful. You've held fast to him. Even though the outside world is taunting you, you can stay true to the Lord. The Lord will not be mocked. So there's two different thoughts here. Sennacherib is basically acting as if God is not who he says he is. And Hezekiah is acting as God is who he says he is. And it's this question of what are we going to do and what's going to happen? Well, in that moment, Hezekiah prays. And in 2 Kings, this is the prayer that's recorded. So I'm going to read this. It says, Hezekiah prays this prayer. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations of their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed." So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Do you hear his prayer saying, God, save us. All these other gods that are not gods, they're little g gods, they have completely been destroyed because they weren't gods. They couldn't withstand this thing. But you are God. And so that everyone can know that you are God, please ask. Spoiler alert. A night angel of the Lord goes out, and 185,000 men wake up the next morning dead. Dead. Gone. I mean, they're gone. 185,000 dead in the camp. Just like that. So, what does this have to do with Psalm 76? Well, I think everything. Look back at the verse 3. It says there, in Jerusalem, there, in Jerusalem, where Sennacherib's army was defeated, he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war, rendered useless. God sends an angel lord out, and by his word, death. Judgment falls. Think about this for a second. You're on the wall. And somebody thinks enough of your intelligence and thing to think that you can hear somebody taunting your God and is worried about you actually going out. You're there, you're hearing what's going on, you're hearing the swords beating the shield, you're hearing the war chants, you're seeing the flashing arrows about to come at you, you're hearing the chariots and the horses of 185,000 men coming at your city, and you, yes, you're in a fortified city, but you have nowhere to go, and if something doesn't happen, you will be overtaken. And you're sitting there, and you're wondering, can I even fall asleep tonight? What's gonna happen? And then there's all this noise, and then in a moment's time, Silence. And the silence represents your freedom and your deliverance. Because the angel of the Lord acted on behalf of God to save you from these men. And so when it says in verse 3 that there he broke these things, that there he destroyed it, God breaks the enemy's weapons. He renders them useless. In this moment when the people needed God to act, he acted And so we pause and reflect that only God could do that, and yet he did it. It's a beautiful picture and he continues on to verse 4. He says, "Glorious, are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey? God, there's no one that can measure up to you. You are more glorious than the mighty ones who think that they're the greatest. Even the ones that have the high views of self." Verse 5 it says, "The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. Those who dared come against you, God, though they have been daring and stubborn, they are Gone. This sank into sleep is a poetic way of saying night-night. Unable to use their hands. Verse 6, it says, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Complete silence at the word of the Lord. The chariots wheeled ceased. The world sometimes feels like it's caving in around us feels like we have no deliverance. We, we lack faith sometimes. that deliverance is not coming. And yet in those moments, we can trust that God is faithful and that he will deliver at the right time and in his way. It reminds me even in the New Testament when the disciples have seen Jesus move and here he is, they're in the presence of Jesus in the boat and they're going across and Jesus is taking a nap and the waves come up and they think this is it, we're going to be destroyed, we have no future, we are going to die if Jesus doesn't act. They wake Jesus up and like, Jesus, don't you care? And by the word of Jesus' mouth, he provides stillness and calmness and deliverance. Friends, our God is a God of deliverance, and though it may not look like what you think it should look like or what you want it to look like, He is always faithful. He delivers. He has authority. He is a warrior. He is an overcomer. Continue on verse 7. It says, But you, God, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? This rhetorical, no one can stand before you once your anger is roused. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. At the voice of God, everything changes. A couple times in Scripture, several times in Scripture, there's these moments where God's voice of judgment changes what's going on. One of the first ones is in Exodus when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. Over and over again, is let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. This is the cry of God's people. And Pharaoh says no and no and no. And finally, God provides a way through the sacrificial blood of a Passover lamb spread over the house. And that night it says an angel of the Lord went out and every house that wasn't covered by the blood of the lamb, the firstborn died. The judgment fell because they weren't covered by the blood. We also see that when Moses is meeting with God, Getting the Ten Commandments and he's having this incredible conversation with who you experiencing God. And yet the rest of the people are like me and you. We get distracted and we start deciding that, well, Moses is taking too long. Let's create our own God. And so they fashion this golden calf. He says that Moses comes down. There's this incredible like, anger that happens because how could you worship these, this fake calf? And God's judgment comes down. It says 3,000 men were dead. We need to understand that judgment is real and that judgment happens because of sin and because God is perfectly holy. Yet, in the midst of judgment, what we also see is that God is glorified. God is glorified. It includes judgment. Just as God brings judgment in the past, so too will he in the future. And the fact is, is that what basis will you face judgment? At one point. Time you will stand before the throne and you will face judgment. And while we cherish deliverance in the gospel, judgment is the other side of the coin. One, stand, one day we will stand before the throne, and if we stand before the throne and our basis for judgment is our works, we will fall just like Sennacherib's army. Our judgment comes and is covered by Jesus and his blood. And the beauty of the gospel is this, is that we have a greater hope. And I believe this passage even speaks to this. This is almost like a prophetic psalm where it's speaking about in the moment, but something to come. And what we see here is that the greater hope we have is the Lion of Judah. We just sang about that song, and I believe this psalm here even points that way. It says, in Judah, God is known. And so it's referencing this idea of Judah, where Judah is, and that he's from the lion from the tribe of Judah. In verse 2, it says this, his abode has been established. This word abode in the Hebrew is not like a house or a tent or anything like that. It actually is more like a lion's den that is speaking of den language, where the lion makes his home in Judah. And so it's this lion language. And even in verse 4, it says this, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of You see, there's something glorious about the mountain full of prey when the roaring lion is coming to town. We have a lion as our king. The book of Revelation speaks about it this way. John is having a vision, and he he sees this scroll, the seals on it, and he says no one is able to open the scroll. There's no one who's worthy he says he begins to cry because no one is able to institute the final reality of what we long for. And yet one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll. And in that moment, we expect John to turn his eyes, to clear the tears from his eyes, to look up and see this conquering Aslan lion figure. And what it says instead is that he turns his eyes and it says the lion is actually the lamb, looking as if it had been slain for the sins of the world. You see, when we talk about this lion of the tribe of Judah, what we also need to understand the other side of it is that he is the lamb that was slain for you and for me. And in verse 3, remember that there goes back to Jerusalem, Jesus actually was slain in Jerusalem for you and for me. And there at that slaying was the way that he provided judgment and deliverance at the same time so that you and I could have the presence of God with us forever. This psalm is incredibly beautiful. We deserved wrath. We trusted in this world. We have sinned against God. We have become enemies of God. And in that place, God pours out his judgment on the lamb, on your behalf and on my behalf, so that we can have freedom and deliverance. One theologian describes it like this. Imagine yourself standing in front of a dam that's 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high. In this moment, if you're really thinking with me, all you're seeing is concrete. As far as your eye can go right, as far as your eye can go left, and up and down, all you see is concrete. But you are confident of this. On the other side of that concrete is a bunch of water that if let out at any moment will destroy you. That water represents the wrath of God to be poured out for the sins of mankind. And you stand there ready for your judgment. And as the dam opens up, You are about to be completely destroyed by the flood of water that's coming down. And the gospel is this, is that while you stand there waiting on your judgment, it's as if Christ takes it all. The ground opens up and swallows up every last drop on your behalf and on my behalf. And as you stand there, you have done nothing. But Christ takes the full weight of the wrath of God upon him, the judgment poured out on him, so that you and I can be free and have eternity with him. The lion of the tribe of Judah has become the lamb who was slain. And in this passage, what we see is in Jerusalem, that is where it happens. So when we talk about we worship God this morning for his works, it is because he is the all-powerful one. It is because he's El Shaddai. It is because he's El Elyon. But it's also because of what he's done on our behalf. His wrath provides your deliverance. His judgment poured out provides your freedom. And so this morning, you provide nothing for your salvation. There is no room for pride. But this humble representation that, Jesus, we owe you everything. Which leads us to point number three this morning. Worship of our God requires your allegiance. To worship our God requires your allegiance. If you truly worship, you show allegiance to the victor. I think many times in our lives we get caught up with this prize fighter worship mentality where we see somebody like Conor McGregor in the ring or some other prize fighter and we're there ringside and we're cheering on and we're pumped up and he comes out he takes a picture with us we get a little sweaty we're like oh can I get your autograph and we're oh yeah you're the best please don't kill me please don't hurt me this is fantastic and then we leave and we 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 tell, tell everyone about it for a second and then we just take this autograph and put it on the shelf like it's a relic. And the further we get down, we're like, well, I wonder who's coming next. Like, I wonder what the ne- who's the next person is. And the further we get down, maybe we work out, maybe we lift weights, maybe we lose some weight. And we're like, well, I could do that. I could hop in the ring. I could be the victor. And we treat God that way as if that's how we should worship. Friends, God is the ultimate victor. There is no one who has ever defeated him or will ever defeat him. He deserves our complete and total allegiance and, our worship. and to worship him means to be faithful and committed to him. We do not worship God like that. No one compares to him. Verse 10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. This world is corrupt, corrupted by sin. It is not perfect. There's many evil things that happen. And yet what we see is that even in man's schemes for evil, God is glorified. Even in the evil scheme of Sennacherib, to take over the dwelling place of God, God pours out his judgment, and it brings glory to his name. In the, book of, in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. The same thing happens, right? Joseph's sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes on this incredible journey, and then he sees his brothers face to face, and his brothers are all scared because they realize, uh-oh and what joseph says is unbelievable something we need to hold on to what you meant for evil god intended for good and in romans chapter 8 it also says this that our god works all things to the good of those who love him that though it may not look like what you think it should like think it should look like or what you want it to look like god is always faithful and so we trust that and the wrath of man helps god's character on display We live in this world that's corrupted, and yet God permits things to happen. But we ultimately know hardships will lead to God's glory. Verse 11 and 12 is where we're introduced to the the first thing where it's almost a command. Okay, considering all of this, then what do we do? It says, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. I don't have time to fully develop this idea of vow language, but I get to perform a, a lot of weddings as with, working with college students. And my, uh, one of the most dreaded questions I have uh, now is, can we, perform, can we write our own vows? Now, whether you did that in your own thing, that I'm not, there's no judgment here. God's going to pour out judgment later. But the, the reality is, like there's nothing wrong with the original vows. Right? Like there's a reason those vows have stood the test of time when two people get married. I was at a wedding recently. I'm not going to name names. They're not in this room, so don't worry about them. But they were talking about football and dogs and like clothes. And I was like, what are you guys even promising to each other? And a lot of times, I was talking with a man and my wife about it. a lot of times we, we, we treat God that way. We just create our own vows. God, you know, if you do this, then I'll do this. It's called a conditional. God doesn't work in conditionals. God is an unconditional God who loves us unconditionally. And we make the vows that God tells us to make, not ones that we want to bring to the table. And so we trust that, like the idea of performing a vow. When I, when I considered marriage to my wife, I considered the vows that I was about to make. Like I had to sit there and think about, do I really want to marry this woman? I didn't think long, don't worry about that, don't tell her. But I considered, I thought, I explored, we had dated, and I... I Took all of the sense of things and said, yes, God, I'm willing to stand before you and say, I'm in on this. My commitment is here. It's on the table. And what this passage is basically saying is, consider God. This whole passage points you to this picture of how faithful God is, how good he is, what he has done for you, what he will do for you. And it says this, if you're in, be in. Make your vows and keep them. Bring your worship to the Lord. Who he is and what he's done, you can trust him, so give your allegiance to him. It says we make vows, we keep them, we we bring gifts, this idea of worship that our life is just like worship to the Lord. We hold fast just like Hezekiah did. And the beautiful thing is, is even when we break our vows with the Lord, there is forgiveness that awaits. Because in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. So how are you doing as a follower of Christ this morning? Or how are you doing with your vows? Are you walking with Jesus? Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Are are you following Jesus? Are you daily in the presence of Jesus? Are you being made into his image? Are you fishing for men? Are you sharing the gospel? When you join this church, if you're a member of this church, you made certain commitments to this church family. How are you doing with those commitments? If you are married and maybe you have kids, you made certain commitments to your spouse and to your kids How how are you doing in those areas? Are you being faithful as a follower of Christ? Your commitment shows your allegiance to the king for the world to see. So if we really believe this God is who he says he is, we will be committed to show our allegiance so that that's how we worship and others see it. This is how We worship. We stay faithful to the mission. We trust him. And in the midst of this world where it's already not yet tension, where Jesus Christ has already won the victory, and yet we don't see the full reality of it, we march forward recognizing that the victor awaits. We worship him. We live like God is who he says he is. So what about you this morning? Where are you? Do you trust this God? Do you trust This God who has done what he says he's done, and do you rest your faith in him? Do you worship him? Or are you tempted by the lies of this world to to run and go the opposite direction? The beautiful picture of this psalm is it's it's a chorus. It's stirring our emotions and saying, this is your God. This is what he's done for you. And so now it's time for you to respond. It says it's written to the choir master with stringed instruments. The symphony awaits, and it's waiting for God's people to rise up and sing a song that brings praises to the king. So this morning, are you joining the chorus? The chorus that sings, God has overcome through Jesus Christ. The chorus that sings, Christ has won the victory. The chorus that sings, God, I know you're doing a work in my life. The chorus that sings, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. The chorus that sings, God, I believe you are who you say you are. That chorus has room for you. And so this morning, I invite you to sing with us as we worship, as we worship this king. And if you don't know this king, there's a chance for you to get to know him this morning, to place your faith in him, to trust him. But if you know him this morning, may your heart respond and your lips proclaim the truth of who our God is. Let's pray. God, we love you. We recognize that you have displayed love for us by pouring out your wrath on Jesus. And so, God, this morning we trust that you are good and we trust that you will deliver, and we trust that just like you have acted in the past, so too will you act in the future. God, we don't fully understand what, what the pictures around us. We don't fully understand why certain things happen, but we are certain of this that you are good and you can be trusted. And so this morning, God, if someone's in here and they don't know you, I pray they would turn to you so that their future would not be the reality of that crashing water coming down on them. But that the reality would be that Jesus has swallowed up their wrath and their judgment on their behalf. But God, if we're in this room and we know you, may our hearts be live and may our hearts be tuned to the glorious grace that knows that you are the king that's worthy of worship. And so, God, let us sing this morning about how good you are and how you're changing us to be mouthpieces for you in this world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.